You can sit down. They forgot to tell you that. How are we doing tonight, Salt Company? Good. So, uh, a lot of times, I feel like we're overstimulated with the things we read on our news feeds and the information we're constantly trying to process. But there are times, actually hopefully many times after tonight, where you stop and you realize that the things on a news feed should bother you, that the things you read should make you uncomfortable, and if you're a Christian, the things you read should make you so desperately want Jesus to come back. Two days ago, a young woman in Ames, Iowa lost her life. Not peacefully either. It was violently taken from her. Celia is her name. She's an hour and 40 minutes away from here. And something that God would never want absolutely happened to her. And I think that when we hear Jesus tell us to mourn with those who mourn, we have to see a situation like this and absolutely enter into that pain. I want you to feel very uncomfortable about the world you're living in because it's not supposed to be this way. I fear for my daughters and I fear for so many of you young women that you can't just walk down a street by yourself without wondering maybe in the back of your mind, am I safe? It is not supposed to be that way. And as God's people, we do not ask him, why did you let this happen? What you actually should ask is, what did he do about it? And when you ask that question, you'll begin to walk backwards in history and see a day where the son of God himself, knowing evil was prevalent and suffering was a problem, took all the evil and all the suffering upon himself. And ever since that day, every second he stepped out of that grave, he's been pushing back evil and telling it has no place. And he took the kingdom to come where all of that would be gone and slammed it into earth right now. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're not hoping it might be true, we're living in its, in its reality, but we know it's not here yet because Celia still lost her life violently. And right now I wanna pray for her and her family. I wanna pray and I wanna believe that what man and what Satan and evil intended for evil, God is going to use for good. And that one day he's going to bring the world to rights and Celia's death will be avenged, will be settled, and Jesus will be our good king who gets rid of all the tears and all the brokenness. And he's promised us a city where we will never have to fear. He's promised us a city where we will never cry. And he's told us it's coming. And if you're like me right now, I want him to come while I'm preaching this sermon tonight. So let's pray right now together. Jesus, we are not immune to the suffering of the world around us. And we recognize that something that is not your will and something that is not something that you're happy about or for happened two days ago. But that you do not stand by cold and distant, but you are so emotionally and spiritually and just present in that moment. I know already stories of people who have come to Christ because of what happened to Celia's death. But that's not even what this is about. This is about you recognizing that someone who bared your image was violated, was taken advantage of, and you're not going to sit idle and let that happen, but you're not also going to let it be hopeless because you are the king of taking all the world would do for evil and showing them they have no chance because you are a good and powerful God. 
And so right now, would you work in the lives of every single person involved, even the perpetrator? Would he see his sin and be saved? Because it's not okay for me to pray that everyone else and myself would get grace and not him because I need the same grace that he did. So would you even save his soul? And right now, would you be near to Celia's parents, her loved ones, her friends, Iowa State University? Would you take what Satan would so want to fuel for evil and instead bring something so good out of it? It's exactly what the cross was, something so evil and yet brought the greatest good that could ever be good into existence. And so we pray believing that and asking it to be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for mourning with me. We're gonna open up a really fun, really weird book, okay? First Corinthians, it's a weird one. It's a wild church that I'll uh, explain in a second. We're gonna spend the next eight weeks going through the first eight chapters and then take a break. You're gonna go home for Christmas, uh, celebrate baby Jesus, come back. And then we're gonna keep rolling on the rest of the book and then finish off with something I'll tell you later. But I wanna talk to you about 1 Corinthians. So Flip, it's in your New Testament. It's right after Romans. So if you're in the Gospels, keep going. 1 Corinthians. While you're going there, we're gonna go into the first nine verses, but I wanna kinda tell you about the city and then about the church. Because the one thing you should never do is open your Bible and assume you know what it's talking about. You probably don't do that. You're probably pretty humble and go, I don't understand this at all. So whenever you open your Bible, you can ask, who was this actually written to first and what was happening that would cause someone to get a letter written to them in this context? And see, the background of the city. So Corinth is the name of the city. It's right at the bottom of Greece. It's this major port city. All kinds of trade, all kinds of boats, uh, merchants loved the place. Like it was the place to go if you wanted to trade something. The city of Corinth was a mecca of sales and trade and just all kinds of things like that were happening. It was a lucrative city. So lots of money. Lots of people went there to make money. Corinth was a place that you went to make money because it was easy to do. Because of where it was, there was all just kinds of nations, different things happening there. So it's this melting pot of all these cultures, all of the society happening at once. But it was also the hub of what we call religious pluralism. So that just meant if you wanna worship any God you want, absolutely do it. So any God you could think of probably had a temple in Corinth, whether it was Zeus or uh, Hades, or especially they loved Aphrodite. So the goddess of love, they loved her uh, a little too much. The temple there was known for having prostitutes that whenever you wanted, you could go sleep with. Like the city was also real weird. Corinth was a strange place. Worship was all over the place in Corinth, just not much worship of God. And it kind of all kind of boomed like this 44 years before Jesus was born. So Julius Caesar, you probably heard his name, he decided he wanted the Roman Empire to be even greater. It's kind of a trend for the Romans. So he sent a bunch of people who wanted to make a name for themselves down to Corinth and said, repopulate the city, make it a banging place. He probably didn't say that, but he wanted Corinth to be awesome. He wanted it to represent Rome and they did their thing. So when you went there, you found yourself in a Roman outpost. Roman life was the way of life. It's customs, it's traditions, it's worship. Even just the way you saw life was through a Roman lens. Now, what about the church in a place so filled with worship, maybe not of God? What would that church look like? So it actually, we get introduced to the church in Corinth in Acts 18. 
Paul's kind of nervous because he had just gotten used to getting the crap kicked out of him when he went to a new city, like barely stoned to death, barely alive. It was just this weird pattern for him. So rightfully so, he's a little nervous, but God says to him in a vision in Acts 18, he says, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. And I love this. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. I love that. I have many people in this city talking about Corinth. So Paul stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. So for a year and a half, he gets this church started, things start rolling, and then he heads off to Ephesus. And that's when the problems start. That's where Corinth kind of hops on the hot mess express for Jesus, and it gets real messy. So the first Corinthians, it's actually the second letter he wrote to them. We don't know where the first one is. It didn't make it into our Bibles. So this isn't the first time Paul's written to them about some of the issues they're facing or things going on. This is actually the second letter. And then 2 Corinthians, the one you would flip to after this, that's actually the fourth letter. So there was even a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. So we actually have 2 and 4 Corinthians. I know that's confusing. Let's move on. So they're really messy and they don't listen. They're kind of like little kids. So it's a church, mostly of Gentiles. So just non-Jews, just a bunch of Gentiles trying to wing it for Jesus. And so after a year and a half, he hears these problems, start writing these letters. And what you have to remember is when we pick up one of these things, it's like reading somebody else's mail, right? We're joining in the middle of the conversation. So we have to jump into the context and begin to ask like, what is actually happening? And so we can ask the questions to figure out exactly what it is. And that's like maybe just a small tip. Never read your Bible without thinking about who it was written to first. It'll actually make it less confusing. And if you're like, well, what do I do? Just Google study Bible. There's millions of ones free online. It'll help give you the background of the city. And what you will find and what we will find together is as you flip through the pages of 1 Corinthians, you will find that they have really, really big problems and they weren't really taking Paul seriously. So he starts the letter like right away. He says, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sothenses, our brother. I don't think that whole called as an apostle by God's will was an accident. I think he knew the Corinthians were ignoring him. And he goes, look, if you're not going to listen to me because you think it's me, that's fine. But God called me to be in charge of you. And so you need to shut up and start hearing what I have to say. He's trying to say like, no, 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 look, it's not just me. These aren't just my opinions. God himself made me an apostle. So you need to understand that when I speak to you, it's as though God is speaking to you because they just weren't listening. He's trying to establish his authority, and he's writing primarily, if you're like, okay, why was 1 Corinthians written? It's because they are messing up the name and reputation of Jesus Christ. They were messing up the name and reputation of Jesus Christ. Like this is not a church that you'd go see and wanna start living like. I'm gonna tell you a few of the things that we're gonna find out they were doing. Like the first thing, they were getting drunk during communion, right? They were getting drunk during communion. You can't do that at Candeo because we only use grape juice. And if you got drunk on grape juice, you have a really weird tolerance, right? <laughs> That'd be wild if you stumbled away from that after that little sip, because you dunk it here. Like, we're very, never mind. <laughs> Pragmatics, you'll learn someday. So think of it. And the bigger issue behind them getting drunk and like just chowing down on the communion bread is they were then leaving the poor people in the church with nothing. They weren't helping them. So they're getting drunk. They're ignoring the poor. Some dude is sleeping with his mother-in-law. Yeah. <sighs> right? <sighs> like, that is weird. They're always fighting. 
they're suing each other. They can't agree on anything, constantly saying, well, I follow this guy, and I follow this guy, and I do that, and I do that. Nobody is getting along. And then a bunch of them still thought it was totally cool to go up to the temple and have sex with prostitutes. Like, this church looked more like Sharkies than it does, like Candeo, okay? It was a wild place. It was not good. That's called contextualization. You're welcome. So knowing this wild time was being had in this Corinthian church, what would you say, right? What would you say? Because I would come out cracking skulls. Like seriously, do with the mother? Never mind. So let's find out what Paul said, because what I said isn't what Paul said. Let's see what Paul said. I'm going to read verse two through nine. Let's see what Paul says. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way in all speech and knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So for a church filled with so many flaws, he seems to be filled with all kinds of optimism and hope. I would have started right away with a mother-in-law guy. Like, let's first start with weirdo. Get him out. Crack his skull. Send him on his way. God will find him later, right? Like, see ya. But he actually, you notice he doesn't mention a single issue that he has with them yet. Those will come. He's going to deal with them. But he doesn't mention a single issue. In fact, he doesn't talk about them really at all or anything that they do. Instead, what Paul does is he dumps identity all over the Corinthian church. He speaks so much identity into this church in Corinth. He doesn't just start with saying, hey, stop doing what you're doing. He says, look, this is who you are. And this is like a parenting tip you can tuck away. So typical like bad parenting or like ineffective parenting, unless they're about to put like a fork in a socket, then you should go like, hey, don't do that, right? That's a good time to yell like, hey, don't do that. But typically if you're like, hey, stop lying, and you just say it like that, like, hey, just stop lying. Like, they might stop for a little while, but what you actually do, really good parenting, it kind of gives them the why. So like when our daughter lies, she's really into that right now. It's kind of a bummer, but she loves to lie. What we say is, hey, Finley, don't lie to your mom. But I say, because that is not who you are. Our family is not going to be a family of liars. And so because that's not who our family is, that's not who you should be. See, what Paul is saying is, listen, Corinthians, I'll get to the stuff that we need to deal with, but I need you to hear who you are should be dramatically changing how you live. And I think you've forgotten who you are, so I'm going to spend the first nine verses reminding you. Who you are always informs what you do or what you should do. We're always living out of identity, every single one of us. Even if we can't identify it quite easily, we're all living out of a rhythm, a habit, or a belief in who we are. It's just how it works. And who you are matters so much, especially, especially 
if you're a child of God, especially if you follow Jesus. Because we live, uh, the life we live as this church is meant to draw people in to see who God really is and what he can do in a broken world. Look how he addresses them at the beginning. He says this, he says, to the church of God in Corinth. Notice he doesn't say to the Corinthian church. He says to the church of God in Corinth. See, what I think he's trying to tell them is they were meant to be God's people in the city. They were meant to be God's people in the city, to the church of God in Corinth. It wasn't written to an individual. It was written to a church. So already he's flying in the face of American individualism, right? The Christian life is never lived alone. It's always assumed that you're with other people trying to figure this thing out. And so here is Paul saying to the church of God in Corinth, to my people in a city. And see, here was where all their problems were coming from because they were meant to be in the city, but not of the city. In the world, but not of the world. Their behavior was more Roman than it was like Jesus. They looked a lot like Corinthians, but not much like Christians, right? They had the in Corinth part down, no problem. People knew those people are in Corinth. But see, that was the issue. They were swimming in this Roman saturated way of life and then drowning in it. They weren't rising above the current of culture. They were sinking down into it and compromising. The pagan worship, the going to temple, the suing each other, the getting drunk, all of that looked way more like the world around them than the God that saved them. That was the issue. They weren't demonstrating any difference between themselves and the city. And that reality is actually one that modern evangelicalism, Christianity, faces today as well. We're surrounded by this westernized version of following Jesus, this American dream way to live. It's this individualistic culture that is influencing our Christian life. And see, here's the problem is when you compromise and begin to live that way, you affect your witness and your life as a Christian. What we almost actually do is make the Christian life or following God less attractive because our lives don't look different at all from the world around us. I actually see two things often happen. So one, when you live a compromising Christian life is you'll just turn people off. They go, well, you're supposed to be different and yet you do everything just like me. You're supposed to be different and yet you still sleep with your girlfriend. I don't understand why I would follow you. You're supposed to live this different life. You claim to follow Jesus and yet you get drunker than I do. That doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't add up. Or what it does is it convinces people to live a hypocritical Christian life. They go, oh, well, so you can do that and still do all that stuff that I thought you weren't supposed to as a Christian? And you don't want to be someone who leads someone into a hypocritical way of a Christian life, right? So you, you either give them this picture that they don't want anything to do with, or you give them this really inaccurate picture where they think compromise is just part of following Jesus, Every single one of us does this too. So it's not like I'm just calling out you. It's likely that all of us have something that we compromise on. Really small or really big. There are areas of our life where we are not looking any different from the culture around us, right? But we need to make some distinctions because when I say that, I'm not asking you to be like a cult, right? I'm not asking you to like move out to the country and all wear weird white linens and drink Kool-Aid together, okay? Like that's called a subculture. Those aren't good. But that's often what we do is we go, okay, we got to protect this thing. We got to move out into the suburbs or the country. No neighbors for miles. We'll have homeschool co-ops, no offense. We'll ride our horses and we'll just do our thing. We'll stay as far away from the world as possible. That's not what we're supposed to do. 
There's a difference between being set apart and just being weird, right? That's very different. And I love you if you're weird. Welcome to the club. But I wasn't homeschooled, though. My teacher was not my mother. It just wasn't true. What we're supposed to be doing, sorry, that was so unnecessary, is display a difference in how we speak, to display a difference in how we love, to display a difference in how we date, to display a difference in uh, what, we, yeah, what we say, what we watch, what we listen to, how we spend our money, why we move to the places we move, why we love the people that we love. All of it is meant to display something so different from the world around us. We're actually not supposed to be this like set apart place that hides. We're most, supposed to be more like a lighthouse that provides a way out of the rocks and treacherous culture that's convincing you to just drown. Our lives, this church, this ministry is supposed to be a lighthouse to the people you walk by every day in class saying, look, come and be human the way you're always meant to be human. Come and see a better and truer way of life, the real way to be human. Because remember, Jesus is not just offering a great life for Christians. The, the life Jesus offers is the real way to be human. You can't just tell them, well, this is how you can be a Christian. You need to start letting people know this is how you can really be human. This is how you can really live the way God always wanted you to live, to stop having so many system errors in your life and having so many things not go the way you want. And here's what I love about Paul's approach to helping them. He says, look, I'm not just gonna tell you to stop. He's gonna move Fossa them, right? He's gonna say, remember who you are, right? <laughs> he doesn't come rolling out of the clouds. That would be dope, but he sends a letter. And in the beginning of the letter, he says, remember who you are. Remember who you are, because the identity given to us by Jesus is one that should dramatically affect and change our behavior. The identity given to us by Jesus should dramatically affect and change our behavior. Here's what he says. He keeps going in verse two and into three. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So he makes two really big statements of identity, and then he talks about the implication of it. So he calls them those sanctified and those called as saints. So let's start with sanctified. Sanctified is a really fancy term for the process of becoming like Jesus. See, when you and I get saved or when we enter into relationship with Jesus, he's not just like, okay, sweet, you're out of hell, stay here while I go get some more. No, he says, now look, walk with me because I've shown the world how to truly be human, become like me, follow in my footsteps. That's what he said to every disciple and you're no different. Follow me, he says. Sanctification is that process of following and becoming like Jesus. And everywhere else you read, the Greek phrase used to describe it is kind of this ongoing process. But here it sounds like it's like you were sanctified. Like it's already been done. And that can be kind of confusing. So let me use an illustration to kind of help you understand what he's saying. So think of it like marriage, okay? Josie got married in June. It was beautiful. I was there. The pastor did a great job. <laughs> I know the guy. He kind of looks like me. Anyways, you guys didn't get it. Josie got married, right? That was an event, but she's still married. It's a process, right? So when you entered into a relationship with Jesus, he kind of sanctified you, boom, here it goes. But now you're still in the midst of the process. So it's ongoing. So he's saying, look, you were sanctified, but you're still being sanctified. Greek's way cooler than English, and we just don't know how to describe it. But 
then he says, so he's basically saying to those in process, right? Not to those perfect people, not to those who have it all together, to those in process of becoming like Jesus, called as saints. Don't think uh, like New Orleans, don't think white robe with a halo. When you hear him call them a saint, think about he's saying to God's set apart people, not living in perfection, but living in process. To God's set apart people, not living in perfection, but living in process. To the people God has specifically set apart to display his love and his salvation to the world. I'll tell you this, not a single situation you are in where you want to compromise justifies you living less than a saint of the living God. Not a single situation you'll find yourself in will cause you to compromise as living less than a saint of the living God. And notice there's no sinner saved by grace language here. He's saying you're a saint. You're a saint now. You have been set apart for me. Live that way. And we live in God's service and we do this because of that last part, the implication, Jesus is now our Lord. So if we are saints and being sanctified, we then call Jesus our Lord. He says that they are calling on everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. What he's saying is their identity as saints requires their submission to Jesus's way of life. And here's where I think a lot of us begin to experience a lot of friction because we love really liberal, nice Jesus who's okay with us even when we totally mess up. Like we love that guy. Thank you for loving me, Jesus, even though I screwed up. And we love Savior Jesus. We absolutely want him to save us from our sins. But the place that I feel like we all get really kind of upset or resist him is when he starts telling us that the way we live needs to change or that he gets to have a say in the things that we do, right? You cannot get the grace of Jesus without the lordship of Jesus. You do not get to take his grace without his lordship in your life. They're not exclusive, they come together. If you are going to be saved by Jesus, you are going to live in submission to Jesus. And I think a lot of you who maybe don't feel like your Christian life is working might actually be because you aren't living in submission to his lordship. It's maybe the cause of the most dysfunction in the Christian life because you do not get to do whatever you want to anymore. If it doesn't line up with the life that God lays out for us in our Bibles, then we cannot just ignore that and keep doing what we want, right? We don't get to touch our girlfriends wherever we want and however we want anymore. We don't get to watch whatever we feel like we want to watch anymore. We don't get to drink alcohol underage or get really drunk because we feel like it anymore. We don't get to violate people, whether through websites or in person. We don't get to objectify anyone anymore. We don't get to just live for ourselves and spend our money however we want to anymore. Jesus has a say in all of that. And when we think that we can make better choices than him, it's like a four-year-old telling their parents they can drive the car better than mom and dad. So it's not like our way actually would be better. We're fools to think that not submitting ourselves to his way is better. And like I said, I think the greatest issues in your life may stem from the areas in which you're not letting Jesus be Lord. It may stem from the areas in which you're not letting Jesus be Lord and tell you how to live. And don't think for a minute that he's some sort of like oppressor 
that he's come now to give you a ton of rules and make your life really difficult to live. If you remember what he said in the gospels, he says, I've come so that they could have life and have it to the full. He says, I have come, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus came not offering restriction, but actually true freedom. Because the way we understand freedom is getting to do whatever we want. And when has that ever actually gone the way we want? No, Jesus actually comes and he says, you can finally say no to the things that you thought you wanted and say yes to the true way to be human. So he's not oppressive, he's actually freeing in how he leads us. He's telling you, you can truly be human, but you need to give me the rights to your life and I'll show you. He's not an evil overlord or a slave driver. And then he says this to the Corinthians in verse four. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. I always thank my God for you. Again, think about the do with his mother-in-law. I always thank my God for you. God bless you, Paul. I couldn't say that. That you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's another thing you have to understand is God does not expect us to live in submission to him or as his set apart people without his help. He's actually going to give us every single thing we need to live exactly the way he wants us to. What he's saying here is, look, he's saying, you don't lack any spiritual gift, Corinthians. You were enriched in every way, in all speech and knowledge, all that you do, all that you have, it's a clear sign that God is with you. Guys, the Christian life is not like the show Naked and Afraid, right? It's not gonna ever show up on TLC or like Bear Grylls, you're left in the mountain with a knife. Jesus does not save you and then go, okay, good luck. Hopefully I'll see you at the end. No, what he does is he actually says, look, now you're in my house and you're a part of my family. Anything you want, whenever you want it, it's all yours. Jesus is not holding anything back until you pray for the 300th time before he really starts helping you live the Christian life. He's not denying you anything. He's not holding back anything. He's supplying you with every single thing you could need. Every gift or ability you need to live the Christian life is there. And if you don't believe that, it's just misunderstood identity, right? God's not the parent who forgot to pack his kid's lunch. We're just the kids who are like, oh shoot, I forgot my name was Michael. And then we have to find the right lunchbox, right? I did that once. It was a bad day. (laughs) You aren't left to figure this whole thing out with as little knowledge as possible. You are a child of God with a father who is so quick to help you in every single time of need. He's right there. And he does it through gifts, right? You, you first get the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? So God's like, hey, how about I just do this with you by living within you, right? Gift number one, God himself dwells inside broken man. I think we, we miss the fact that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is living inside of you right now if you know Jesus. So if he can raise people from the dead, he can probably help you stop sinning and live differently and it says later in this book, in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, that the Holy Spirit distributes gifts as he wills, right? So it's not that we like get to pick a gift. It's not a vending machine kind of a thing with God. And it's not just speaking in tongues or wild prophecy. I got room for that, but it's not just that, right? Like spiritual gifts, the ability to encourage somebody, the ability to challenge somebody, the ability to pray for somebody, to talk to God at all times, the ability to just say something to someone at the perfect moment that that thought wasn't in your head. You ever had that moment? You're sitting with your friend, Stacy. You're like, Stacy, I really think this thing and this really smart phrase comes out of your mind. And you're like, oh, that wasn't for me. That was definitely from God. That's a gift, guys. 
There are all kinds of gifts. If you think, does it help me love people in the church? Does it help me stay away from sin? And does it make me feel closer to the people of God? It's probably a gift from God. So instead of spending all the time trying to figure out what they are, just know you're not lacking in any of them. God is giving you all you need to live the life he's calling you to. He knows that this world wants you to compromise and he's given you everything you need to make sure that doesn't happen. But he also knows that you need the grace for when it still does. So Paul continues to unfold the identity that he wants the Corinthians to have. And I want you to remember, he's not telling them to just stop doing something. He'll get to their behavior, but the most important thing to him is their identity. He's not lying or embellishing about this either. He's not flattering them. He's not like, well, maybe if I tell you these things, they'll actually be true. He's saying, no, everything I've said to you is true. It's just that I don't know if you believe them. And if you did, you'd realize it was right here for you all along. If they get this, a lot of their issues would likely fade into the background. In that last one, that little phrase, he says, as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ actually would fix so much, even in my own life. See, He's saying, you're eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back. You're eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back. You live a life that lives in anticipation of the one to come. Because Jesus came as a quiet, suffering servant, but he's going to come back like a roaring, roaring lion with a new city in a place where you'll never have to face sin again. He's coming for that, and he's telling us we should eagerly await Something like that. Like the people who camp out for a new iPhone or a child sitting waiting to watch Finding Nemo. Like eagerly just waiting. There's a lifestyle that accompanies that. And it actually, that lifestyle will make saying no to sin and compromise so much easier. If you lived a life eagerly waiting for the day Jesus came back, a lot of the issues you'd face would probably fade into the background very quickly. And Paul is saying here, I think you've lost focus and I want you to see clearly again. Because I bet you that dude wouldn't have jumped in bed with his mother-in-law if he knew Jesus would have come back, right? I think some of you would stop sleeping around if you knew Jesus was coming back. I think some of you would spend your money differently if you knew Jesus was coming back. I think I would parent differently and less with frustration if I knew Jesus was coming back. If I woke every day recognizing my God could come back today, it would radically change the things I choose to compromise in. Paul's saying, no, remember what you're living for. Remember the life to come. You would never have to think, okay, if Jesus is coming back, why would I settle for this? Like it would create in you non-issues. So many of the sins that you feel like I just can't beat. I wonder if you would begin to watch them fade away if you remembered, my God's coming back someday. My God's coming back someday. I hope it changes me. And then he grounds all of this in the last two verses in like the most optimistic, hope-filled way you could possibly do it. He says in verse eight and nine, he says, he will also, talking about Jesus, Jesus will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no pessimism in that. You will be blameless. Paul's not doubting it. And then he says, God is faithful. Not, hey, the Corinthians will be faithful to remember their identity and change their behavior. No, Paul's hope is found in the fact that God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son. He's saying, look, God was the one who called you into this relationship in the first place. He's the faithful one who will see you to the end, the one where you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord. See, God, or Paul in this moment, and then God through Paul is not condemning the Corinthians. 
He's trying to remind them of how sure he is that they're going to make it. The Christian life as you fight sin can often feel so defeated. And today I'm telling you, you may feel defeated, but you have no idea the hope God has that you're going to beat the sin that's facing you right now. You may feel defeated, but your God is nowhere close to thinking that. He's actually got a guaranteed victory in his mind. And he's telling you, look, when you think you can't win, think like me because I know it's in the bag. That sin that you can't seem to beat, that website that you keep clicking on, the anger that you keep feeling in your heart, I know you feel like it's never gonna go away, but I know for certain I'm gonna take you to a day where it will never bother you again. God is the faithful one in this situation. Paul's confidence is in God's ability to see this through. He speaks with confidence in their transformation. You will be blameless. Not you might be blameless. You could be blameless, we'll see. No, you will be blameless. That's assurance. There's no pessimism. Paul's trusting the process, right? He's Joel and beating this thing right now. <laughs> he believes that sanctification doesn't happen in a microwave. He knows that God was fully aware of the mess you were when he found you and he is not worried about it. He's gonna see you to the end because God is the faithful one. No one is hopeless when Jesus is involved. Do you understand? No one you lead, no one you meet, not even yourself. If Jesus Christ is the one you want to be Lord of your life, then you have more hope than anyone else in this world that you will win. He is a God of hope and he plays the long game with the Corinthian church. This should be so helpful to you. God's not telling you, speed it up, figure it out, speed it up, figure it out, get holier faster. No, he's saying, look, this is a process. I'm sanctifying you. I've set you apart and I'm the one who will make sure you're blameless in the end. It's me who's carrying you there. Submit to my way, trust it, follow it and be filled with hope. And it's a process that doesn't just say modify your behavior, it's remember who you are. It's a transformation of identity, not a modification of behavior. When you really begin to believe the things that are laid out for you in these first nine verses, you will actually watch your behavior change while you weren't even trying. It may require effort. Don't hear me say, don't try. You absolutely need to put in effort, but you don't need to earn it. That's what grace is for. And so God, Paul can thank God every time he thinks about this mess of a church because he knows ultimately who's in charge of it all and where they're headed. It's to a place of blamelessness. See, God gives us the greatest identity we could ever have. It's the most hope-filled one you will ever receive in this world. It's filled with optimism and grounded in something apart from you. It's grounded in the work and power of Jesus. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son. See, that's what I love is God called you into this relationship. Remember, you weren't like, hey, I think I wanna try this Jesus thing out. No, long before you ever found yourself in here, God was calling you and he found you when you were a mess. He's not intimidated by your sin. He's fully aware of the sin you're in and he knows he's going to defeat it. He's telling you to believe that tonight. He's telling you to believe the identity he's given you because he called you into it. I think some of you live intimidated and guilty and unsure because you're like, I can't believe the mess that I am. And God says, I can and I love you anyways. And if you would just listen to what I have to say about you instead of the lies in your own head and the lies out there, you would begin to watch everything change inside of you. And so tonight, instead of just walking away, I hope you don't go, I think I should change all of my behavior. I hope you walk away going, I wanna believe who God says I am. 
And I want you to wake up every day and even if you have to just read this over yourself or read Colossians 1, 21 through 23 over yourself. I think before you ever start trying to change your behavior, you need to start rethinking your identity. That's what Paul's making clear here. Put all your hope in the fact that God is faithful. He will never be anything but faithful to you. Even if your life looks like a dumpster fire, you guys, he's gonna come put it out, take you out and clean it up, right? He is faithful to you. He's the hero of the story. It's got nothing to do with us. Our hope is in him. You will be blameless. God knew what he was getting himself into when he rescued you. How great is that? That at your worst, he knew that he was going to turn you into your best someday. And so like the Corinthians, maybe after they heard those first nine verses, I want you to hear this before we end. Be who you are, a saint in progress, not perfection, loved by an absolutely faithful God, called to be the church of God on this campus and in this city, and then set apart to reveal the true life that we were meant to live, not perfectly, but in progress, knowing you have hope, more hope than anyone else in this world could ever have. Let's thank him for that. Jesus, we come before you so grateful that you are not a God who condemns, who knocks us over the head and tells us to try harder. You're not a God who tells us that when we've failed, there's no hope, but you're a God who says, don't worry, it's not about if you're faithful, it's on me and I'm always that way. You will be blameless. And so I want us to worship with optimism and hope. I want us to be challenged because there's things in my life I know don't match up with the identity I've been given but I don't have to walk out, walk out feeling guilty or ashamed. I can walk out feeling free knowing that it can be defeated, whatever that thing is. Would we be the people of God in this city? Would we be the people who are so filled with hope that that alone draws more and more people in? Jesus, through this book, would you speak to us? And even right now, thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you. Would you fill us with hope? and remind us of truth.